The Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verse 1. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterwards he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, what the, uh, the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the son of man comes, he will Will he find faith on earth? And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for the story we We ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand the context that this happened. Father, we pray that you would also assist us in understanding how this applies in the principles um, some 2,000 years uh, from this setting that this story happened. Lord, we desire um, to know you, Lord. And so we pray that through today, uh, the preaching of your word, that you would draw us closer to yourself. We ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. So the story begins, chapter 18, verse 1. Now, he was telling them a parable. The question is, well, who's the he and who's the them? There were no chapter and verse divisions when this book was initially penned. In the 1500s, a French guy came up with chapter and verses to help us navigate. So we have to really go back to chapter 17 to try to get the context of of how did this story unfold. In verse 22, we see who the... The they is that he's addressing. And it said, and he had said to his disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the son of man and you will not see it. So if we remember from last week, Jesus had encountered as he's entering into a town, he's working his way from the Galilee region up in the north, going south through Samaria. In chapter 18, they'll pull into Jericho, which is just outside of Jerusalem. He's heading to his last Passover where he would be executed, where he would die on the cross and he'd be buried. And on the third day, he'd raise again somewhere along the way up north on the bordering line between Galilee and Samaria. He was entering a village. There were 10 lepers. Leprosy was a horrible, contagious disease. They had to stay outside of the side of town. They couldn't interact with people as they approached people or anybody um, that they could accidentally touched they had to scream out at the loud of their at, at the top of their voices unclean 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 that nobody was allowed to touch them they were ostracized and these 10 guys cry out to jesus lord have mercy on us and jesus looks at him he says go to the priest and be examined and so they by faith turn and they go and as they go immediately they're healed one guy returns a samaritan bows and worships jesus's feet and Jesus says, were there not 10 of you? Where'd the other nine go? Does this one, this Samaritan, come back to worship me? And after this setting, the Pharisees start asking about the kingdom of God. They wanted the Messiah to come. Their understanding of the Messiah, that he was going to come and to rule and to reign and to break the Jewish people free from the rule of the iron fist of the Romans. And so Jesus basically addresses them in a couple verses, and then he begins to speak to his disciples, and he tells them, listen, you're going to long for the days of the Son of Man to come. 
And the Son of Man comes from Daniel chapter 7, the picture of the end times when Christ comes to establish his kingdom. He says, you're going to long for me. You're going to want to see this day, but you're not going to see it. See, we know that the disciples, Jesus knew he's heading to the cross. He's going to be executed. He would rise on the third day. He would spend another 40 days, and then he would ascend into heaven. The spirit would come a number of days later, and then the church would be established, and these disciples would go forth and establish the church. Of these 12 men, 11 of them would be executed for their proclamation as Christ is Lord. John was the only survivor. The only reason he survived is because God wanted to keep him alive. He was boiled in a vat of either oil or water. Um, he survived it. And then ultimately he was exiled to Patmos. And so he, he lived, but he had a pretty rough life in his living. He knew that hard times were coming. And he tells him by the end of chapter 17, as he says that these people are going to be taken, that God's wrath is going to be unleashed again before the second coming of Christ. And at verse 37, I can just see, I love the disciples. They don't have a clue what's going on. And they looked at Jesus and they said to him, where, Lord? Like he keeps talking about these people that are going to be taken away. Like, where, where are they going? Like to Disneyland or are they going? Like, where exactly are they headed? There's some turmoil in their hearts. And the Lord responded, he said to them, where the body is, there, there also the vultures will be gathered. Meaning that the ones that are taken, they're being destroyed and their flesh will remain. And the, the vultures, which like to eat dead flesh, will gather. And I could just see like the weariness on their faces. And that's the context for how this passage sort of opens up. And now we read, now he, that's Jesus, was telling them a parable. The next part you should highlight, if you write in your Bible, if you mark it up, this is the point of the parable. To show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. Makes it very easy for me on this tired morning where my brain's not firing on all cylinders. All I know is that on this first parable, the only point ultimately I have to make is that you should pray and not lose heart. Pretty easy. Let's go. Yeah, Larry's like, let's go. But there's a second one. (laughs) So Luke tells us that this is the point of the parable. He wants the disciples, even though they're going to be executed, they're going to be beaten, they're going to be tried, not to give up and not to lose heart, but to continue to pray. The parable is this, saying that in a certain city, there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. This is a major problem for a judge. If a judge who has all of this authority or any person who has a significant authority over under individuals doesn't feel accountable to God, they're going to be a loose cannon. They're going to take advantage of people. They're going to harm people. But a judge who fears God and has a healthy dose of like, at the end of my life, I'm going to stand before God. I'm going to give an account for how I treated other people. Their judgments and how they handle people, there's a respect there because they understand that they're a person under authority. And God wants all of us to understand ourselves as ultimately being under authority of God. Because if you understand that you're under his authority, it changes how you behave. Marriage is a classic example. I, um, I totally attest, week, I think week after week after week, I tell you guys I'm not a perfect husband. The fact that I understand that I'm going to give an account before God that when I make a mistake in marriage, I'm like so much quicker than I was 10 years ago when we first got married to when I make a mistake to like own up for it and to apologize and to confess my sin before God. Like I'm okay with saying, yeah, the fact that I fear God affects how I respond to people. But this judge, it wasn't the case. You have a guy who's crooked. He would take bribes. He didn't care about people. He only cared about his own interests. In verse 3, we learned about the second person. There was a widow in that city. And she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. She wanted justice. The widow during this era, during this time in human history, there were absolutely no rights given to her 
Her husband could have passed away. She could have rightly been entitled to those assets, but she would have to make a huge legal case. Sometimes it could go straight into like probate and she'd have to argue it. Today in our setting, when a spouse dies, it automatically goes to the remaining spouse. The widows, because of their lack of protection, they were often taken advantage of. They were swindled out of money. They were pushed aside. And I think that this is why all through the Old Testament, God has a special place for widows. James, Jesus' brother, tells us in James that true undefiled religion is taking care of widows and orphans. That those who can't protect themselves, that there's this obligation to come forward to protect them. I think Christianity very much is a verb. So let me explain that because I'm not even a grammar person. So it's kind of awkward that I say that. But Christianity is not just about making some profession that you get fire insurance. That God wants us as we look out in this world to be people that, that value justice. To, to reach out and help those that are being victimized. When I look at uh, World War II, the Holocaust, the things that were happening to the Jewish people, in large part it was Christians realizing, like, listen, this is absolutely wrong. We've need, we need to step up and put our own lives at risk to help them. Have it, has anybody heard of the man Coney? Coney. Has anybody heard of Invisible Children? A, a, a couple people. See, there's a man in Africa who's a horrible, evil man. He's ripping children out of their homes, enlisting them into his army and making them do atrocities. Nobody's doing anything about it. But a number of Christians about 10 years ago are exposed to what's going on, and they're doing whatever they can do to try to bring this man, Coney, to justice. I think on the issue of like abortion and anything, like Christians are called when we see injustice, we're actually called to intervene, to do what we can do to protect those that can't protect themselves. And this widow was a person like that. She kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection for my opponent. We don't know the story. This isn't a true story. Jesus is telling a parable, which is a story that conveys a spiritual truth to make a point. She needed legal protection. She was going to him. There's an opponent. She's going to persist and go after this guy over and over and over the judge. She's going to wear him out. We see in verse four. For a while, he that's the judge was unwilling. But afterwards, he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man. I forgot my lost my place. Verse five. Yet because of this, because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. He's like, you know what? I still don't fear God and I still don't respect man. But because this lady is driving me crazy, she's wearing me out. It literally means to give him a black eye. It's a it's language that you would see in fighting. Like that she's so beating him up that he's against the rings that he surrenders. I get the picture that he steps out of his house and there's like, oh, good to see you, judge. You know what? I still need some legal protection. Walks with him all the way to his office, standing outside. And as soon as he comes out for lunch, oh, good. Can we continue the conversation? You know, this person is my opponent. I need some help. I need your intervention to do something. It's like, oh, come on. Just uh, can you talk to my secretary? We'll make an appointment for later. We'll do whatever. Blow her off. But then, you know, he goes home and his message machine, there's a million emails from this lady. She's absolutely getting on his nerve. So he'll get rid of her by actually following through. So finally, because of her persistence, her going after him, he finally concedes to do the right thing. And the Lord said in verse 6, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over him, them? So he asked this question. He says, look at this widow and look how this unjust judge responded. Be persistent. Now, we're not going to get to it today. I, I thought I was going to. But down in verse 15, as Jesus is talking to the big to the adults, a bunch of kids run up. And the disciples are like, hey, this is for the big kids. Like, let's, not, not for you guys. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Let the kids come through here. Unless you act like one of these kids, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. 
And so when I see this persistence, man, I think of a persistent little six-year-old in my house. The grace is persistent. So persistent. And there are some things, particularly like relating to the things of God, that she like totally, like as a dad, makes me proud. And as a Christian, she sort of like shames me. There are just times... Like anywhere, like there's like, say there's a law enforcement sort of action. I'll be driving down. The more cops, the better. The more lights on, the better for me. I think, ooh, what's going on? I want to get in on some of that action. And then Grace is like, stop. Turn off the radio. You guys need to stop talking. We need to start praying for the cops and for the person that's hurt. And and she's not telling us to pray. She just shuts down everything. She says, dear Lord. Can you just pray? I want to pray for all of the police officers that they would be safe and that they'd help who's ever in trouble. I think, oh, that's what I should have thought. Instead, I'm trying to think of like, man, I kind of look and I go, man, I hope that there's like an officer in trouble. That's like losing the battle. So it gives me an excuse to stop the car and go intervene and like be in the fight. But my daughter prays. And so I'm reminded, no, I need to pray. The other thing is with her, her great-grandpa and his granddad. Old, hard cowboy, fixed in his ways. You know, coming up on 80 years, he's about 80 years old. He's got a 44-acre ranch with cattle, horses, dogs, chickens, everything. He works the land. Grace faithfully prays for him. Like every night. And if you've ever been anywhere in any like church setting where there's an opportunity to share prayer requests, her little hand goes up. Yes, Grace, what's your prayer request? Can you pray for my grandpa Hilkin that he would come to understand what it means to be a Christian? And her faith of like what, just believing that God will move in his heart is shameful to me as an adult who goes, man, he's like a stubborn cowboy. Like, I, like he hasn't necessarily like rejected Christ. But there's not exactly the evidence, and he's kind of set in his way. Like, you just, we're in Valley Center, and if you know cowboys, Brett is not a cowboy. Just because he has cowboy boots, does it, he is so not a cowboy. I'm talking like real cowboys. <laughs> like, it's easier to get a cop to smile than it is to get a cowboy to smile sometimes. But she prays. And he says, in verse 6, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will God not bring about justice for his elect who cry out to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? Jesus says, don't lose hope. Keep praying. No injustice is escaping his awareness. And if we're praying for, like, justice to happen... And we ask, why, Lord, why? Why have you not stopped this? You know, speaking about Israel, well, now that I just brought it up, now we're speaking about it. It's the joy of having the microphone. One of the places that you'll go in Israel if you do the trip is there's a place in northern Israel. Let's see if I can remember. Somewhere up there, like east of Caesarea. And there's Megiddo, and it looks over like Jezreel Valley. It's this huge, beautiful valley. And in the Bible, we're told that when the Armageddon happens, that the valley will be filled with blood. And on our trip there, this guy was talking about end times and like just the overwhelming like picture of what it would look like. The only thing I could think of was grappling, grappling with my heart was over in 2 Peter chapter 3. If you'll turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. One of the greatest verses in the Bible, I I really like this one personally, because God has been pretty patient with me. And there we read, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Now, the context of that verse is Peter, who certainly he was present during today's story. He was one of the apostles. He was ultimately killed for his faith. This is one of the last letters he wrote. Things were getting very bad. Christians are getting executed. The Christians were asking, what's the question? When's God's justice going to come? When's he going to restore things? When's he going to fix everything? 
And if you go to verse 8 to get the context, it says, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. God is outside of time. And for us, if when we pray for God's justice, if God was going to bring his justice right now, the opportunity for your loved ones, your co-workers, your siblings, your friends that don't know Christ is done, is over. And one of the things I love about the Bible is we learn that God is so much more patient with man than we ourselves are patient with man. Because the verse continues, verse 10, look at, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a, a roar and the elements will be destroyed with an intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. See, Christians, we do believe in global warming. It just not might be exactly how <laughs> we... Like the earth is going to get warm. So Peter doesn't lose hope going back to Luke. Peter was in this story. God, Jesus told him, keep praying, don't lose hope. He would later have inspiration by the Holy Spirit to pen Peter. And he'd say, listen, it's not that God is slow in coming. It's that he loved, he's a God of love and he wants all people to come to repentance. All people to come to know him and love him as Savior. And somewhere in Luke 18, when I find my place, verse 7, no, yeah, verse 8. We'll go verse 8. Let's go to verse 7. Okay. It says, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will God not bring about justice for his elect who cry out to him, who pray to him, who seek him day and night or night and day and night? And will he delay long over them? He's coming quickly. Like in the scope of eternity, a few thousand years is nothing. He goes on to say, I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the son of man from Daniel chapter seven comes speaking of himself, he says, will he find faith on earth? Which brings us back to the verse one. The point of the parable is that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Jesus is coming back. There's no injustice that's not going to be made account for. Everything God will sort out. And he tells us, his followers, don't lose heart. Pray, seek me. Even though things are looking bad, even though your life has fallen apart, even though whatever you fill in the blank with, Last week I shared that I'm not a music person. Well, I've shared that a bunch of times. But when I do write my first song, it's going to be a country song. And it's going to be about losing my transmission. <laughs> That's my world falling apart. And he says, don't feel bad just because your transmission fell apart. Hang in there. Keep praying. Keep seeking me. Don't lose heart. So I got the new, I got the new transmission. And now a check engine light came on again yesterday. So I'm like, I'm not going to lose heart. I need to get another 180,000 miles out of it. <laughs> okay, where are we? Okay, so don't lose heart. Keep praying. Then he gets to verse 9. Or he didn't really get to verse 9. He got to his second parable. Now, the second little parable is a little disturbing. It's troubling. I told the last service it should really trouble them. Because if you're at church at 830 on, on time change day when you lost an hour of sleep, you are a religious person. Like, so for most of us in this room, if you're here at 1030 on a time change day, you're likely a religious person because I don't want to be here right now because it's I'm like tired. I'm a, not a morning person. If it was really up to me and I thought it would be, uh, you know, benefit to everybody, I would have church at like three in the afternoon and then five at night because then I'd be on all five, like well, however many cylinders I have. See, I'm tired. I'm like talking about myself like I have cylinders and five and five of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This is not. This is no bueno. Waking up, and I'm speaking in tongues. Okay, verse nine. So he told this parable, and the why I brought that all up is it says that this parable is aimed to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So in this setting, as he's talking to his disciples, certainly there were the Pharisees, although he doesn't use Pharisees by name in this setting, but they were religious people. 
Religious people think that their works are what... My brain, there's words there. I have too many files open. I need to start closing down some files in my brain. But they're, they're, that your works justify you before God. We all have this propensity. In this story, we're going to learn about a tax collector and a Pharisee. And in my own life, I think I started out like a tax collector when I first came to Christ. But now that I've been a Christian for 15 years, I've moved more to the Pharisee side of things. I was so broken before the Lord. But now I tuck in my shirt. I comb my hair. I read the Bible. I go to church every single Sunday. I even preach twice on Sundays. God has done a huge work in my life. Like all of my friends that know me from the back then think it's hilarious. Like one of my buddies was running the, the marathon today. And on Facebook, he's laughing. He's like, man, what a joke. Like, I can't believe you're doing the opening prayer. Do you know how funny that is? I'm like, I absolutely know how funny that is that I'm doing the opening prayer at a marathon. And in my mind, the, the legalism, I start looking at my own life and thinking how great I am. See, the Pharisee in the story, he's going before God to like prop himself up to tell God how great he is. That he views other people with contempt because his measuring stick isn't against God's holiness. It's against how is he doing with everybody else? Uh, drinking was a problem that I had, drunkenness in particular, because anything worth doing is worth overdoing in my book. And I wasn't given the gift of moderation. It's a terrible combination when it comes to alcohol. I did not stop drinking for religious reasons. Uh, drinking isn't so much a struggle that I have anymore. But during that era and that season of my life when I was really um, doing some hard stuff, tattoos began to get big. And I'm not saying anything against tattoos, just my tattoos, just for the record. And so... What I've caught myself moving from Pharisee or from tax collector to Pharisee is often in my heart when I see somebody covered in tattoos, I have a thought. What a knucklehead. That's my thought. I think, what were you thinking? Like with that. And almost instantly as I think that thought, I get a whack in the back of the head from God. And he's like, you idiot. What were you thinking? And I'm like, oh, yeah. I forgot, like, my whole reformation in my life it had nothing to do with me because I'm, I'm, like, terribly sinful and the desires of my heart want nothing to do with God. And the fact that I am where I am today is because of the work that God's done in my life, not because I've become a good person. And Jesus is going to address this. In verse 10, as he starts to tell his parable to get the attention, to teach a lesson to those that thinks, those people who think that they're righteous, based on their own actions and that they view other people with contempt. He starts out with two men went into the temple to pray. Now the temple in Israel, in Jerusalem, it's a part we've all seen when there's pictures of Israel, there's the big gold dome, the mosque. That's where the temple was. This is where the actual animal sacrifices happen, where atonement for sins was, was demonstrated by this, by slaughtering animals. Blood would be there. It's doesn't, it's not like that today. So they enter into this temple the place where Jesus is in route to. And we are described by a Pharisee. There was a Pharisee and another a tax collector. Already in our context in today, we're in trouble. Because by our context, we think Pharisee, we think bad. We think that's a bad person. Because we have, like even people who aren't church-going people, when we hear about Pharisees, we think, oh, that's a bad person. Samaritans are good. Pharisees, bad. But in the context, to the hearers that were there listening to Jesus, they would have heard Pharisee. They thought, okay, that's the good guy in the story. That's the guy that was born into a good Christian home, that was circumcised on the eighth day, that was in Sunday school, that went to church, had all Christian friends, knew all the Christian logo, logo, let's see, language, logo, oh, come to me, lingo, that's, I'm like, logo, lingo, what's going on here? Not enough coffee or too much coffee. I don't know. Um, this is the person that had the big old fat Bible. 
with markings on the inside, with a leather case, with a zipper, with tabs so they could fastly get to like whatever book in the Bible they needed to get to. They gave money. They were sold out for God. So when this story is unfolding, don't think bad guy Pharisee. They would thought, okay, that's the good guy. This probably will carry the thread of the widow. And then there's a tax collector. Yeah, tax collector translates pretty well in our culture, <laughs> especially as we're like in March. Nobody likes a tax man. But there was a little bit more personal. Like these are people that were turncoats for the Roman government that they traded. And the way they got paid was basically they needed to send money to Rome. But as much as they could extort out of a person, that was theirs to benefit for their own gain. They were hated. Hated. And if you had a family member that became a tax collector, it was like they were dead to you. It was an embarrassment and a shame to the family. During this time, you did not have to keep your word to murderers, uh, thieves, or tax collectors. A tax collector was not allowed into the synagogue. They were not allowed to give alms in the synagogue. They weren't allowed to give their money. The synagogue said, we don't want your money. It's dirty. They were ostracized by the, by the religious crowd. They hated. And I use that word with the strongest like connotation. In our culture, we should think drug dealers that are selling drugs to little kids. Child molesters. Those who abuse elderly. Get that image in your head when you think tax collector. It would be the person that if they walked into this room, everybody would be kind of watching them out of the corner of their eye. Like, what are they doing here? Do they, do they hit the wrong place? This is an AA or this is an outlaw or whatever. Like, this is the sort of attitude that would be coming out of the church. I'm not endorsing this. I'm just trying to get the, that we get the, the right attitude here. So we're the Pharisee, verse 11. He stood and was praying to himself. Literally, he's praying to himself. It doesn't say he's praying to God. He says he's praying to himself. There's a slight glance towards God, but the most of the focus is going to be on himself telling God how awesome he is. There's five eyes in this prayer of his. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, God Thank you that I, I thank you that I am not like other people. So there's the negative aspect of the prayer. I thank you that I'm not that. I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Like this is a bold, you imagine me like standing up and start praying like, God, I thank you that I'm not. And just start listing people in this room. Like if you do that in your heart, it's bad. This is not a good example. But he's comparing himself to other people. And he's not only comparing himself to other people, he's saying that he's better than everybody else. And then he goes on to say, I fast twice a week. Look at what I do. According to the Old Testament, you were only required to fast once a year. And this guy fasts twice a week. He is such a good religious person. God owes him so much because of this stuff. And then he goes on to say, I pay tithes of all that I get. See, I'm putting a negative spin on this because I've read ahead. But I kind of think at this point in the story, those that are listening to him, they were all in the pipeline kind of there, but they, they had fallen short. They'd washed out of the system that they, they didn't have what it took to make it into the Pharisee ranks. And I think that they're listening to this going, man, that dude is sold out for the Lord. Like that he's not all these things. He fasts twice a week. Man, I fast once a year. And it's like hard. Oh, a tithe of the gross income. Oh, I should do that, but I, I don't. So I think that they're starting to beat themselves up. Like, oh man, we're really missing the mark. Like this is what we should be striving for. And now the tax collector is introduced. But the tax collector standing some distance away not really welcomed in the picture. He would be at the outskirts. And there he is at the temple away from everybody else. Was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven. And see up in the temple, there was the holiest of holies. The, the veil that at the cross was torn to 
where the presence of God was, his eyes are down ashamed to even look up. I don't know if he looked low enough to where he could see the blood trailing from the animals. I mean, this is a story that Jesus is telling. But you get this picture of this man doesn't want to look up. And when you've done something wrong and you've been confronted by something, somebody who, who really likes to look at that person in the eye, that's like, oh, man, I don't want to like, you know, this is the big thing with Grace whenever, like, you know, I, she was like, too, and I'm like, look at me in the eye and tell me what you did. And Hannah's like, Connor, she's not a SEAL student. And I'm like, no, I just want her to look at me in the eye. You know, let me know that you know what you did was wrong. But when you're in that position, you don't want to look in the eye. And this person's like hiding themselves from God because they know they're guilty before him. And as he's not lifting his head up, we see that he's beating his breast like this, this like kind of this penance, like, Lord, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And this word merciful is propitiation. Like the atonement, like, Lord, may the guilt of my sin fall elsewhere. And may I have freedom. If you'll turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 12 or 2, I'm sorry. Hebrews is towards the back of the Bible. Hebrews is a great, uh, it's like the, the New Testament counterpart of Leviticus about the priests and how Jesus is the great high priest. And Jesus is telling, if you're turning to Hebrews chapter 2, if you're trying to find it, it's one of those books that I never can find. Jesus has turned his face towards Jerusalem. He is going to the cross and he's telling this parable. And this word mercy, that propitiation is the word that's used. When we get to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, it says, Therefore, he, that's Jesus, had to be made like his brethren in all things. That Jesus being God stepped out of heaven and took the form of a man so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation. That word is the same word that this man in the temple uses. Make to make propitiation for the sins of people that Jesus came and where this man back in Luke chapter 18, the parable that Jesus is telling this man who deserve condemnation. Jesus became that condemnation for him that he might have life with God. It's powerful. If you're back at Luke 18. So he's beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me. And Jesus makes his point in verse 14. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is a beautiful picture here. Jesus looks at him and he says, you know what? That Pharisee that was all about religion, his religion, his self-righteousness, Isaiah uses gross language and says that our righteousness is but filthy rags, literally menstrual rags. Is filthy rags are the best righteousness that we have is disgusting before the Lord. And Jesus says that that Pharisee didn't walk home justified. All of that stuff, all of that religion didn't do anything. But this tax collector who cried out to God with a sincere heart, who humbled himself, who understood his sin in light of this holy God and cried out for mercy that God would intervene. Jesus says this man walked out justified. This is a great theological word that means that before God, you're just. And his, his justification came through faith by grace. That God's grace, God's great love sent Christ to the cross to die for this man. And it's this, this reversal of like economy. See, in our economy, we think, well, if you do a bunch of stuff, that's got to be better. Now, works are totally a part of the Christian life, but not for salvation, but as a result of salvation, as of thankfulness and gratitude. And Jesus says that this man walked away justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's his total flip. 
God wants us face down before him. And once he saves us as we walk our life, we need to guard our hearts from religion. God wants a relationship with us. And when I look at this whole story, which is bound in the context of prayer, it's intimidating. Because I haven't got it mastered. But where I go for hope is I like Luke chapter 11, verse 4. We've already been there. We're we're not going to go there. You can go there if you want to go there. I'm not going to stop you, but I'm really not going to read it. Jesus is teaching them. And the disciples look to Jesus and they say, Lord, can you teach us how to pray? Like John the Baptist teaches his disciples how to pray. Could you teach us how to pray? And I don't know if you've been there where it's like, Lord, I need some help here. Like, what is prayer? Like, what is prayer? Prayer is simply communicating, having a conversation with God. Like that God is living and active, that he exists. That, that it's not we're just praying out to some random sort of spiritual being hoping for intervention. It's communication. And from Luke chapter 11, he goes on to say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. It starts out with God's holiness. Like, God, you are awesome. And when we put God into perspective, it kind of changes our horizontal. First, we realize that how holy we are is not very holy. You look at Paul's life over the course of his ministry and his writings. He starts from being the least of all the apostles to the least of all the saints to the worst sinner of all. And it's not that he was backsliding in his life. I think that he was getting a greater appreciation for how holy God was. And it put his life into perspective. When we pray... You don't need big words. You don't need long sentences. Abba, Father. Abba is just Daddy. Like, that's the coolest thing in Israel. Like, I was looking for it. I was like, man, I was, it took me 17 days before I saw it. I was like, I knew, I heard it was just super cool because everybody gets back from Israel like, oh, when you hear the little kids running around going, Abba, 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 it changes your perspective. So I'm looking, I'm tracking down little kids, and nobody said Abba. And then on our last day, literally the day we flew out, we're down by where um, Abraham uh, got the promise from God. The guy was talking about something, and all I saw was this like little one-year-old with diaper hat hanging off his bottom. Abba, Abba, Abba. And I'm just tracking the little kid. Oh, it's so cute. Like I've noticed that when Grace comes to me and asks me for something, she doesn't say, Oh, hallowed Father, your mercies have endured my whole life, and I am eternally grateful for this food that you provided me for dinner. And I beseech thee that you might consider in your humbleness and your graciousness that I might partake of some ice cream following dinner. Like the kid comes up to me and says, dad, I ate all my meatballs. Could I have some dessert? Anna, did she? You have some green beans, two more green beans, and you can have some But like the point is, God just wants us to communicate. Like God is the author of language. Sometimes the prayer is simply, Lord, help. Like there's nothing worse than somebody who's in the hospital. If you ever find yourself on like caring for somebody that's in great distress, their life's on the line. It's not the time to uh, start explaining the sovereignty of God and like giving theological lessons. It's a time for a a hug and, and just let me hold you. I love you. Can I pray for you? And it's simple. God wants to communicate. And as we communicate to him, sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no, sometimes he I hear people say that all the time. And it's true. But it's not always that simple. Like I, God doesn't use skywriting. You know, I pray, I pray, I pray, and God does answer. But more than anything, what I've found is that prayer is, is based on relationship, that it's two-way. We read the word, we we seek him. And more often than not, I found in, in, through prayer, what God has done is change the condition of my heart. Change how I felt about something. That I would just have peace about stuff. And where I want to end is in 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy. I made the mistake. This is it's 1 Timothy. So ignore the slide. In 1 Timothy chapter 2. In verse 1, we get this great kind of picture of prayer and how we can implement prayer. In verse 1, it says, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings 
be made on behalf of all men. For kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead tranquil and quiet life in in all godliness and dignity. And I love this picture. Like, we're in an election year. Like, but election year should spur us to pray even more. Like, we always should be praying for those that God has appointed above us. Regardless of their beliefs or whatever, we're called to pray for them. For all men, those in authority. Like, police officers, don't just slow down when you see one on the road. Pray for them. Firemen, like congressmen, the mayor, and all kinds of people. Like, those that have leadership in our society, the Bible makes it clear we're to pray for them. He goes on to say in verse 3, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. We know that this is God's desire. And so in our prayers, let me ask, do you have friends that aren't believers? There are too many Christians that if you, do you have true friendship with those that don't know Christ? I think the statistics, something like within five years, the average Christian has so isolated themselves from people that aren't in the, that, that don't know Christ, that they don't even have a true friendship. Like you should have friends that don't know Jesus. You should be praying for them. Your heart should be breaking for them. You should want them to come to know Christ. It doesn't mean you have to beat them up over the head with the gospel, but it means in your heart that you're calling out to God, Lord, you want them to come to Christ. Lord, would you use me? Help them to come to know who you are. And verse 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The testimony given at the proper time. See, not all prayer is the same. You know, following 9-11, everybody wants to start praying. They got every single faith group. And from what I know from the scriptures, it makes it clear that there's one mediator, that's Christ. Jesus said it himself. I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That Jesus made it very clear that there's this exclusivity. It doesn't come because Christians think we're better. It comes because Jesus, who claimed to be God, who demonstrated his deity, said certain things that we are, we come to a fork in the road where Josh McDowell with, like I think it's Josh McDowell, uh, more than a carpenter, says that he can only be a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Like, he said these things and the evidence in his life, and if you're struggling with who Jesus is, that's okay. We want to encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Take a free book, The Case for Christ. Read it, study it. Look at the evidence. But the Bible makes it clear that there's one mediator. And so we pray in Christ's name. We pray through him. He is our access. Verse 7, For I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. The Bible makes it clear that God wants to communicate with us. He wants to be in a relationship with us. It's not so much, I don't know, people do morning devos. But this week I was preparing for this day, and I think I just shot myself in the foot. Started waking up. I Yesterday I set the alarm for 5 a.m., and my plan was just to set the alarm, to wake up, to condition myself to, so that today wouldn't be so painful. My plan was just to set the alarm, have a cup of coffee, and twiddle my thumbs until like the day started. But when the alarm clock went off, I wasn't very motivated to get up to do nothing. And so I'm like, oh, well, I'm, t- I'm teaching on prayer, so I'm going to all practice praying. So then I said, oh, dear Lord. <laughs> like five minutes later, oh, yeah, 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 I was praying. Our Father who are <laughs> like like over there, like, oh, I'm such a horrible prayer. And I think we kind of think, oh, we'll wake up in the morning. We'll say like five minutes of prayer, and that's going to launch us into the day. But we're told to pray always. And you don't have to have your eyes closed and bowed. Like you can be talking and communicating and praying. Bless you. Like God just wants us to like, Lord, speak to me. Like this is where Bible memory is very handy. Like as you're trying to memorize a verse or something as you're thinking about it, pondering it, trying to get the words all in order, which I'm horrible at. But it forces you to think, and God begins to like show you areas in your life that, you're working, that, that he's working on you. But I think it's great that God wants us to seek him. And if you're here today, 
and this is like your first time in church. Like, I, I so want our church to remember, like, how horrible it is to go to church for the first time. Like, if you were raised in the church, you have no idea. It is horrifying to walk into a place where there's a bunch of crazy Christians. Like, what's going to happen? Do we kneel? Do we bow? Do we, what do we do? Like, how's it all going to go down? Like, it is intimidating. And the last thing Christians or that I want our church doing is being like the Pharisee when people walk in. Because I guarantee you the tax collector is already thinking all that stuff in his heart. And God has chosen us to be his ambassadors. I don't know what he was thinking. (laughs) I don't. Like, like what was he thinking? But we're told that we're his ambassadors to, to give this ministry of reconciliation to help people who don't know God to come to know God. So we religious people need to guard ourselves from becoming self-righteous because we don't have any righteousness apart from Christ. And so, Father, we do thank you and praise you for the work that you're doing in our lives. I thank you, Lord, that you are a God of holiness, righteousness, and justice. Father, we thank you that ultimately you are the good judge. And Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to reflect the love of Christ to all people. We pray for those that enter um, our lives, Lord, that don't know you, that you would help us to love them, to view them without contempt, Lord, to recognize who we are in Christ. And Father, I pray for those that are on their journey that maybe have not come to, in a place to where they've accepted Christ as Savior. And Father, I pray that you would help them to connect the dots in their life, Lord, whether it's through reading or just, Lord, by taking the step of faith, that they would reach out and believe. We thank you that it's not based on our works, that our relationship with you is based on the finished work of Christ, that you've done all. It's by your grace alone. Lord, increase our faith, Lord. Help us to walk with you all the days of our life. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.